So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media. Source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. This is the CRM Archaeology Podcast. It's the show where we pull back the veil of cultural resources management archaeology and discuss the issues that everyone is concerned about. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 233 for February 23rd, 2022. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, we bring on a guest to talk about CRM Archaeology in Belgium. So get your passport renewed because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. All right, everybody, welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast. And joining me today is, and all from California, I'm not going to start, I'm not going to say California anymore, but we've got Bill. Good morning. Andrew. Hello, everybody. And Heather. Hi, everyone. And I am in Cabo San Lucas, Mexico. The internet seems to be pretty great here, but it, it could go in and out either way. And, and just to let the listeners know, too, I will be bailing on segment three because we I have to go get my COVID test so we can fly home tomorrow. <laughs> but uh, what they don't know is that he actually has to go on a open ocean fishing trip and enjoy uh, himself I mean, in the sun while we're all in the winter. Except for in California, wish. we're not really in the winter. We did do whale watching yesterday and we saw whales breaching from our window from the deck of our hotel room like just before the show, which was pretty great. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Pretty cool time to come down here. I got to be honest. Anyway, so Heather is going to be taking over the show today as well, everybody. She's going to be managing the show after this point. And I hope that she can do this a lot more. It's nice. I know it's nice for us to have (laughs) other people that can that can do this. So that's what's going to be happening. So just to let you guys know. And today we have a guest and I should have looked up how long he has been a member of the archaeology podcast network on our members team. And, but it's been a long time. I I don't know how long it's been. It's been at least a year, if not more. And he's a frequent commenter. I love it when people get engaged. That's the whole reason we set up the Slack team for members is so they can talk about the episodes that they hear with the, with the guests. And I, and I know he listens to CRM arc. I know he listens to Archaeotech and, and probably a couple others and it's just fantastic. So let me introduce all the way from Belgium Wouter Yupperman, and I probably said it wrong. <laughs> How's it going, Wouter? Oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. Awesome. Well, why don't we start out by just introduce yourself. I know you sent me your bio, but I want to hear from you, your quick background, how you got into archaeology and what you're doing today, because you're in basically CRM in Belgium, and that's what we're yeah. going to focus on for this episode. But how did you get there? Yeah. So I finished my master's degree in archaeology in 2001. And at that time, there was not much uh, work in archaeology, so I wound up mostly teaching. But I was always connected to archaeology through a society uh, volunteers that were dealing with archaeology in a in a Flemish city. But then things mm-hmm. started to change, and then in uh, mostly because of legislation. And then in uh, 2006, I got my first real CRM project, and since then, I've been full time. CRM archaeologist, and in 2011, I joined my 
current company. And so I've been doing CRM for more than 15 years now, Mm -hmm. almost. And I do about everything. So that means I am a field tech, I'm a supervisor, I'm a crew chief. I do prehistory all the way to the Second World War, urban, rural areas, uh, field working, trenching, augering, excavations, writing reports, unfortunately, do a bit of research and development. Uh, maintaining database things like that so it's it's a lot <laughs> yeah well let's let's start out this podcast by talking about why you're a CRM archaeologist and what i mean by that is when we talk about it in this country i mean basically all our jobs are the result of like one paragraph in the national historic preservation act that says you'll do this dot 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 everybody has a career i mm-hmm. mean there's a little bit more to it than that <laughs> but <laughs> but that's basically it so what what requires cultural resource management in Belgium? Is it is it local laws? Is it is it federal laws? Or it, you know what what requires you to go out there and do these things? Well, in the beginning, it, it was it was local law when when they said, well, we think archaeology is important, but CRM didn't exist, so so it was all the local government that was doing the archaeology, and then they realized they couldn't do it on their own, so they started to to make archaeology mandate. Mm. But then the most significant impact regarding CRM archaeology is the Treaty of Valletta, as it is generally called, which okay. uh, more or less requires within Europe that um, any development should allow archaeology to happen. Hmm. Um, how a country does that, that's according to the country. Okay. Uh, and so Flanders chooses to make that CRM. So the government makes up the rules and controls, and the f- actual fieldwork is done by CRM companies. Okay. So that's uh, and and we employ about well, we I mean Flanders in archaeology, there are about two hundred uh, full time archaeologists who are working mm. in Flanders. Wow, <laughs> it doesn't actually sound like a whole lot. I, I have a question. So you said you started in CRM in two thousand six, and it seems yep. like that lines up with Flanders um, or. I'm not saying that right. How do you say Flanders? Well, you've got, you got the region Flanders and you've got right. Flemish archaeology, Flemish got government, it. Flemish language. So the Flanders became independent from Belgium, right? In 2006 or 2007? No, no, no. no. Okay. So explain, I, explain it. I, I know something happened in Flanders and Belgium. And so excuse my ignorance, but I know that, that there was a change in 2006, 2007 politically. And I'm wondering if that was the inception of CRM. And that's why you started working at CRM. Yeah. So I could do a whole podcast about Belgian politics. <laughs> um, it's it's the, the number one failure for students in the last year. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Including me, obviously. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, it, it is it is difficult. Uh, so so um, Belgium is, is still one country, but we've got different regions. And, and the right. very, very simple part is you've got the northern region, which is called mm-hmm. Flanders, where they speak Dutch, which is, well, Flemish, which is a kind of Dutch. And in the south, you've got Walloon, where they speak French. So that's right. a very, very simple concept of Belgium. But during the period of, of Belgium history, uh, more and more autonomy was given to the different regions. And at a certain point, the autonomy regarding culture and more specifically archaeology uh, was mm-hmm. indeed transferred to a Flemish institute, 
which is called uh, IAP, which is the Institute of uh, Archaeologisch Patrimonium, so the Institute of the, the Archaeological Heritage, to speak so. Okay. And they were also uh, realizing archaeology is important. And at first they did everything on their own. So you had the only archaeologists were working for the Flemish government. But then they, they realized in 1996 that they couldn't do it all on their own. Mm-hmm. So they got a little bit of CRM in there, not much, but a bit. Mm-hmm. And then uh, law started to change. And in 2006, there was another big change, which really starts CRM archaeology in Flanders. And then the Treaty of okay. Valletta, which is 2016, is another boost. So basically, you got 1996, uh, 2006, and 2016. Okay. Those are the three major dates. Well, the, the reason I ask is because, you know, um, in the in the bio that you provided us, you mm-hmm. talked about how archaeology is treated very differently. And when you work in a certain region, that is where you work and mm-hmm. they don't really mix. And in America, we do have different types of archaeology, even outside of academia. And how archaeology is treated from a government side is different than how archaeology is treated from in the private sector. It still has the you know good same kind of principles, but how things are handled, the pressures behind private CRM archaeology versus let's say forest archaeology, which is run by the government, then you know, it, it definitely impacts how you do archaeology. And so I was kind of curious. It seems like since you said in Flanders it is CRM archaeology, but in the other areas it is government-led archaeology okay and i was just curious if there's some correlation between the two if you yeah if you see a a major difference in how they handle versus how you handle crm in in your region yeah so at the beginning you've got your archaeology which is uh, dictated by uh, the academic world so the archaeologists doing archaeology for the government were having an academic training just as I have received. And in the south of the country, in Maloon, it is still the government that does the archaeology for, for the vast majority. So they are, like I am, academically trained, and they do archaeology more like an academic world, which means, to be blunt, you've got a lot of quality, but you've got less quantity. So do, they do less research and less excavations, but each research's excavation is generally speaking, has more quality. While in the CRM world, because of competition, because of a free and open market, you've got your academic archaeology, which has diverted more and more from the strict academic rules and got more into, well, this is a free and open market. What is the goal? What does the archaeology want to know? And we change according to that. So we, we got new methods, digitization, Uh, helped a lot. Uh, And so we diverted more and more of that analog academic archaeology to have a competitive advantage. And so as a result, we have a massive quantity. We do massive amounts of of research in Flanders. The quality is not what we would like to do, but that's because there's a a limited budget. So there is always difficult to find a middle ground between quality and quantity, but 
It sounds very, very similar. A lot of CRM and public archaeology here in America, what we do from a CRM perspective is definitely impacted by, co- you know, by cost and time mm-hmm. <laughs> because yeah. the purpose is to it, what we call salvage archaeology. It is to deal with the resource and to make sure it's protected. But And then obviously you have the pressure of the client that only wants to pay a certain amount <laughs> and the timing um, because it does get in the way of what they want to do ultimately, which is develop. But it also is heavily impacted and guided by the regulatory process. Is that the same in Belgium? Well, there are, of course, rules, which is obviously. On one part, they make sure that there is that there is a base quality. And on the other hand, it makes sure that, that you know what kind of research has been done on what kind of way. So that means if you go trenching, whether... Our company does it or a different company, it's on the same way. I have a follow-up question, Wilder, just on that. So in Belgium, between the CRM work and the academic work, is there a feeling that the CRM work is the second class work or like the dirty work, whereas the academic one is the good one? <laughs> well we see it. Whatever, as- Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Well, Don't answer that. Of course, of, even it, of course there is a difference. Mm-hmm. We, we we sometimes say we just live on different planets, um, right. so so it's it's not big that different from uh, from uh, any other location in the world. But an, an academic archaeologist, just to to be general, uh, has a few sites. While mm-hmm. I, a CRM archaeologist, I've literally done hundreds of sites. Mm, so exactly. I, I've I've been everywhere. I've looked at everything, not in the greatest detail that I would like to do that, uh, but I've looked at at a very broad uh, range of sites. While an academic archaeologist has a very good knowledge of very limited sites, so mm-hmm. it's it's not like one is better than the other; they're just different. Uh, yeah. But of course, academic archaeology is unable to maintain the speed of work that we do in right. CRM to make sure yeah. that all the building projects are completed on time while the archaeological part, that is. Mm. So right. there is that difference. Uh, it is we, we don't see ourselves better or worse than the other. Sometimes we get the feeling, but yeah. generally it's, it's, just, <laughs> it's just different. Right. You've got different opportunities. You've got different interests. You, you've got more science behind you, things like that. If you are an academic archaeologist, yeah. Are there? I, I, I'm sorry. I, I just was interested. I, I thought it was just cool how similar all this is turning out to be between the two countries. Very similar. Is there cooperation between academic and CRM archaeologists? Very, very noticed? little. So the okay. the cooperation is like we we as a company we have the right on. Uh, students to work for us during uh, during holidays where they they must get their uh, their, their practicals. Mm-hmm. So they provide education, of course. They they provide mm-hmm. students for us. We provide a lot of data, but unfortunately, there's very little done with that data. They do work with our data, but we provide so much data that they can't process all that. But on the whole, speaking. There is not much communication between the academic world and the CRM world. That, that's why I said yep. we are on Very different similar. planets. <laughs> Very similar. I mean, I think a lot of theory or academics are very often you know, given credit or at least have the opportunity and the time to develop theory. We're just like you said, we're so busy that we don't have the time. Although I do see more and more now CRM 
is starting to contribute, not just reports, but, you know, starting to contribute on the theoretical side as well here in the United States. Are you starting to see that change in Belgium? Well, the, the theoretical side is is indeed more, more academic. Sure. And we also see in, in, in papers that are being written, it's all academic. We don't write mm. papers in CRM. We don't have time to do yeah, that. Uh, exactly. So sometimes you foreign archaeologists get the impression that there is very little archaeology done in Flanders mm-hmm. because the academic world in Flanders is doing archaeology, but it's not all done in Flanders. It's it's abroad, yeah. it's, in, it's in Turkey, it's in Italy, right. um, places like that. So there's very little academic CRM, uh, sorry, academic archaeology done in Flanders. So there's very little papers about that. But there is a, uh, and it's the third or fourth year that has happened, where the Flemish government is giving a, a fund to do research about this CRM data that has been collected, to get new insights in that, to figure out is, is there a lack of knowledge that we have now solved or uh, where we can do better. So within CRM, there is a budget to do that, but of course that's very limited compared to uh, the work that the academic archaeology is doing. You know, there's some there's some pressures which we won't get into, but in California specifically, because that's what I know, and I think we can take this on the on the next segment because I'm going to probably will start. I'm definitely interested in Andrew and Bill's perception on this, but there's you know we have some great archaeology programs in in California, but a majority of the professors there do not work in California archaeology. They work, and it sounds like it's the same there. So I think um, we're going to take a break here, and we'll talk about that on the other side. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So welcome back to CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 233. And we're here with Wouter Ieperman in Belgium. He's a CRM archaeologist in Belgium. And we ended the last segment. We were just kind of giving you a teaser, talking about we're, we're seeing a lot of similarities between CRM archaeology here in California and CRM archaeology in Belgium. And, you know, one of the aspects that's the same is Definitely, there is a, a chasm, I guess, between academic archaeology and CRM archaeology. And Wouter had talked about how, you know, very, it seems like there's very little 
archaeology that's done in Flanders, when in fact, that's not the case. There's quite a bit of uh, work that's done in Flanders, but it's CRM work. And because as those of us that do CRM know, we're all way too busy to be writing articles because we're writing actual reports for CRM that, you know, a lot of times uh, the perception is that even in California, that some work is not being done when it really is. And so I was curious why that is. And I was interested in hearing if it, if that similarity between why archaeology academics in California don't do as much California archaeology, and if that's the same in Belgium. So I think I will punt it to either Bill or Andrew, since they're professors in California institutions, and see what they think, and then we'll talk to Wouter. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because, it, you know, so there's a there's always that tension, right? between doing archaeology and the place when you're a professor, the place where you've specialized and got your PhD and you're considered, you know, someone who has considerable knowledge in that area versus doing archaeology in the location where the university is actually located. So in California, you know, there are, at least where I work, there's several archaeologists and groups of grad students who are doing work in California. And, and, you know, that, that a lot of that stuff is some of the more forward facing work that's connected with communities and tribes and, you know, doing our very best to try to do the kind of work that gives back to this local area where the university is at in California. But the other tension is the fact that universities tend to hire a range of different folks who have specialties in a lot of different areas. And so we get faculty who did their PhD and have written books and articles and done a lot of research on these different parts of the world. And the idea, I, you know, I'm not really sure, you know, where this whole thing originally came from. I have an idea that it was like a situation where, you know, the university itself was thinking, well, if we get folks from all around the world, then that gives students opportunities to learn from one individual who's doing work in all these different zones that they had carved out, right? But, you know, I don't know if that really serves students as well as it could anymore, especially given what's going to come up in the near future in the United States with students being able to choose more, be more selective between departments and, and institutions. You know, we're already at the PhD level. It's it's totally money ball there where students are weighing their choices and, you know, evaluating the uh, faculty who are there and comparing offers and talking with other students and doing the very best they can to get the best deal when it comes to a PhD. So the, the era of you know, you know, congratulations, you got into the University of Arizona, Bill, you know, this is the one place you wanted to go. And here's just what we're going to give you. Students who can get into places like Arizona or Berkeley or UCLA, they can get into several different locations, and they can really weigh those choices against each other. And one of the things they might consider is choosing a place that has several individuals who are working in California, if they're from California, and they want to stay here, or, you know, going to an institution who has a better program of, you know, Eastern European Neolithic archaeology, if that's where they want to work and that's where they want, they're very interested in and they think they can make it, they might choose a department that has more faculty in that area. So I don't know if we're, I don't know where we're headed in the future because the idea of having eight faculty and each one of them works on a zone of the world, I mean, is that really going to keep students interested and wanting to go there or having areas that are like super specialists in certain parts of the world and they've got several scholars that are key players so that you can build a strong program that specializes in a certain area. 
Whereas you maybe don't have anyone, you know, it could be a California university that's really specialized on a certain part of the world, Mesoamerica or something like that. And they just kind of don't have folks that are doing work in California. And you know, the reasons behind all that stuff, how these decisions like, you know, you would like to think that faculty and anthro departments are super rational individuals that use their knowledge of the human experience to make decisions based on previous failures and successes of the human race. But the reality is they're people just like you. And they make, you know, information based on bounded rationality. And we don't have all the information and stuff. And then, of course, you add in, you know, passion and emotion and other kinds of things, all the insidious stuff, too, that will go unmentioned about the politicking and the money behind the whole thing. And that's how you end up with departments that are located in California, but don't have a single archaeologist that works in California. Yeah, I just my two cents on I think why that perception is regarding you know, being at a university and not necessarily working in that area. I mean, even for me, somebody who's never in academic archaeology, aside from just, you know, getting a degree is I see, I see like the big private institutions, you know, like Harvard and Stanford and stuff like that. And then the the bigger state institutions, like where you're at bill, like Berkeley, I almost see those as like, I would go there if I wanted to work outside of this country. <laughs> like, like that's the assumption that I would make without just like my perception of just like being a human in this world and, and what I know, that's where I would think to go there. And I might go to some other, I don't know, less big state school or maybe even a smaller school if I wanted to, to perhaps work locally. That's based on total fiction, right? Like that's not even real, but that's like my perception of it. And I wonder if other people have that perception too. I think it's actually kind of real. Uh, yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, those schools like that have the capacity to have scholars that do esoteric yep. work. And so mm-hmm. if you were going to do that kind of stuff and that's really what you were interested in, I mean, I'm, I don't want to take space from others, but yeah, you're, you're exactly right. That's where mm-hmm. you would find those folks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a myriad of different reasons. I mean, the UC schools now are starting to move away from, you know, having artifacts right within their repositories that are California mm. archaeology. And we're, we're starting to, you know, that's definitely going to impact the amount of California archaeologists that you're going to get in a UC sure. school. So I think it's shifting to what we would, what we call Cal state, or I think, I do think that you definitely have a, a much more focus on the actual state that you're in, in state universities. At least mm. I've seen that in a few of the different states where you're, more, you know, R1 schools are, you know, more focused internationally and your state state schools are focused on more, you know, state archaeology. You know, I you see a lot of students that want the sexiness of that international and plus it's, you know, it's fun. It's just like Bill was saying, I mean, the, the human disposition is to want to learn, especially if you're an anthropologist, you want to learn about other cultures. Yeah. And I think sometimes people are very narrow minded and don't realize that there are a lot of cultures <laughs> right where you are. But and so, you know, that sounds like fun. But then when it comes down to actually getting a job, it can sometimes, at least in CRM, make it more difficult if you were not working in that area. And I know that in and to bring water back into this conversation, I know that just because I've always had this desire to work internationally, like in Ireland or England, and I know that it's difficult to, it seems like there's a lot more obstacles to work as a CRM archaeologist 
at least in some of these other countries, without having a significant amount of experience, you have to be licensed. And I'm curious, is Belgium the same way? Well, in Belgium, there are a few major universities that supply archaeologists. Uh, for Flanders, that is uh, Leuven, uh, Ghent, and uh, to a minor degree, Brussels. I'm going to get into trouble with my colleagues if I don't mention Brussels. <laughs> <laughs> so the two, the two major uh, universities, which is Leuven and Ghent, Leuven is historically more focused on the Mediterranean area, which means the Roman, the, the Greek, uh, the Eastern, Near Eastern and the Egyptian archaeology. So that university within the students is more focused to that area, the classical archaeology, while the other university, the University of Ghent, it's more focused deliberately on the national archaeology. So we have archaeologists, academic archaeologists, who are doing work in Flanders. There are also, of course, like, uh, like everybody said, there are a lot of archaeologists, academic ones, that do not work in Flanders. They work abroad, like in, in Egypt, in Turkey, in, in Italy, and so on. But generally speaking, because Belgium is, is such a small country, and the students who finish their education here. If you want to have a job in CRM archaeology now, and you are willing to work in CRM now, if you finish your education, you can have a job in CRM archaeology. Hmm. Before 2016, and especially before 2006, it was more difficult. Like, I've got an archaeology degree. Well, congratulations. And what are you <laughs> going to do? Because archaeology is out of the question. We need about five a year. So that was difficult. And, oh, I might work in Italy or Turkey. I might have, have a PhD to be able to do that. But nowadays, I mean, it, as, as a university, you... You really have to focus on, on the national archaeology, not because of, of nationalistic feelings, but just it's the reality. The CRM is where your archaeology archaeology students are going to work. So you have to train mm -hmm. them for that. And the University of Ghent is, is better suited for that because they have historically focused more on the national archaeology. I've studied in Leuven. They're both good universities, but that's, that's the different focus point that they have. And both universities have a spin-off company. Oh, okay. Which is doing CRM archaeology within Flanders. Nice. Yeah, we have that too. Yeah, CRM. We have a few, a few. universities yeah. that are doing CRM. There's a number of them on the East Coast, and there used to be more. Yes, but they're closing up. Exactly. Yeah. Like we were, yeah. I worked on a CRM project that was being taken over. They were taking over a big project that the University of Massachusetts was running. And I was like floored by that. I was like, wait a minute. They're like running it as like a CRM program? I was like, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Which... Leads me to a question, which are what, I guess with, with more of a focus on CRM and, and national archaeology, you know, in the, especially in the last few years, if somebody did, like if you were mentoring at a school or something like that, and somebody says, I want to do archaeology here, what mm -hmm. are the actual requirements? Are, are you, well, not only what are the requirements, but are there programs starting to develop focusing around national archaeology in particular, like we have some CRM specific master's programs in this country now, but still not a lot, but we have some. It's still mostly people when they become a field tech, they're just getting a degree in archaeology, studying whatever, and then they get into CRM and then they might go into a, a CRM focused master's and they might not. It's not necessarily a requirement, but is there programs like that? And, and, and what are the requirements for somebody to get into this field? Well, historically 
speaking, if if you wanted to go into archaeology, I get that question often is, oh, you have mm-hmm. to learn Latin. Oh. No, you don't have to learn Latin because if you're not doing any archaeology linked to the Roman Empire, you don't <laughs> get into contact with Latin. I mean, I never did Latin. And the few writings in Latin, there are just yeah, abbreviations and terminology yeah. you learn very fast. So there is no, you, if you want to go work in, in CRM archaeology, you have to be willing to work period okay. and it it really doesn't matter what you've done at university of course if you've done a program which is more focused on on the national archaeology you've got you've got an advantage but it's not a great advantage so it's not like like i i have done my master's thesis on on a subject in the near eastern archaeology which is completely useless for what I'm doing now. Mm-hmm. But it's not because I've done that that I've got a disadvantage. The people who have worked with, with real uh, materials, like with, with the pottery, of like medieval pottery and Roman pottery that can be found here in Belgium, they've got a slight advantage at the start. But generally speaking, it doesn't matter what kind of education you have. Once you've done your master's degree, you can go into CRM. Okay. So unlike like in American archaeology, where... You've done your bachelor's and then maybe your master. Mm-hmm. Here in, in Belgium, in Flanders, it's just you do your bachelor and then you do your master. There's, there's nobody mm. questioning that. Part of this is because the education system is, is a lot more affordable here. So it's it's out of the question. You do your bachelor, then you do your master, and then you go off to work. And if wow. you want to do CRM archaeology, just at this moment, we are not really hat hunting, but... We are getting close where we actually are. <laughs> you know, if, if, that's it. You know, you you put on your website, like say, we are looking for archaeologists. Ten years ago, you got literally dozens of applicants. Now you got lucky if you got one or two. So mm. it's if you want to do archaeology in Belgium and you've got a degree, you're welcome. Of course, you have to speak Dutch because all the reporting is in Dutch. Speak, speak Dutch oh. and read Latin. That's not very hard. Yeah. No, yeah. no, no. You don't have to read <laughs> Maybe I'll have my wife listen to this episode, actually, because she did her graduate studies in the Netherlands. So she speaks Dutch. And yeah. we've been figuring, looking at multiple gambits. Like every time we have an election and, you know, I don't know, some crazy party gets elected. We're like, well, how can we get out of the United States? How can we leave? And then, and then you know, everything goes back to what it was before. And then every time they get, so you may find in uh, 2024 that I'm sending you an email like, so anyway, you know, Wouter, <laughs> uh, how can I get over there? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, so the, the, you have to, you have to really speak Dutch because everything, all the reporting is done in Dutch. It, it's not like, imagine you're, you're an archaeologist, you're from England and you want to work here, but you can do the digging part, but we demand from our archaeologists that they are able to do everything from the digging part yes. to to the reporting so if yeah, because you have to fill in the database on the site and that's all in dutch so if you don't speak dutch well you can only do the digging part and then it's a <laughs> it's a shame to have somebody with with a degree to only be able to do the digging part i guess i'll get on it but my yeah. my question <laughs> is how come how come you're getting so few applicants is that just folks aren't 
they don't want to do archaeology anymore or just folks aren't going to college for archaeology or what's, or everyone in Europe is employed doing archaeology. And before you could get folks from the Netherlands, France, elsewhere, you know, but now you have to just rely on folks that are local. Yeah. So in, in the past, we got a lot of archaeologists from Flanders who were getting a degree and they went elsewhere, like in the Netherlands, where they speak the same language, but also in England and, and in Ireland, there's a lot of there. But now it's it's really... Everybody who has a degree in archaeology speaks Dutch and wants to work in archaeology has a job in archaeology. So there is simply nobody left to employ anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, you know, we, we get along. And that also means that if you are a student and we get students, which we have to train for their for the practical part, we are looking at them. So it's your last year. Yeah, mm, right. You're doing a good job. If you finish, just, you know, come back and, and have a talk. We might have a job for you. We have also employed students who did not have their degree yet because they had to finish their thesis. Mm. But they, they could start working, you know, full-time, part-time. Yeah. Normally you would think, well, oh, that's an engineer. You know, you, you, got, you got the job before you got your degree. Well, an engineer or being an archaeologist. So it's, it's a really strange world. Nobody would have expected that a decade ago that you would go headhunting archaeologists and, and, and get a job before you got a degree. And, you know, it's, it's crazy. Uh, I, I'm see, I think, you know, right now it, it's really hard to hire people. So, so <laughs> we just have a real dearth of, of archaeologists, specifically archaeologists, like you said, Woodrow, that can that can do everything. That is definitely an area that it, that is lacking, at least here in America. But I'm really enjoying that we have so many similarities between the two. I think we're going to take it to segment three and see if we can dig a little deeper and see if we can find some of the differences. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the third segment of CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 233. We are here with Wouter Ieperman, a CRM archaeologist, and I think, I don't know, I'm, I'm pretty surprised at how the, between America and Belgium, so many similarities between CRM and, uh, and the Belgium CRM. So Wouter, I'm curious, I mean, you, you're an, a regular listener of CRM Archaeology Podcast. Have you seen any differences, noticed any differences in listening to the episodes that what you experience in Belgium? There are a few major differences I've noticed. Uh, for one, like I've already mentioned, like in Belgium, everybody does their master. The education system is so affordable that if you 
if you can handle it, you just do your master. So there is no such thing as, oh, we got the bachelor archaeologist, we got the master archaeologist, we're all masters. How long does a master's typically take? Well, it's one additional year. So the entire program is four years, which means three years for a bachelor and one year for a master. That's one of the differences, because here we have the four years for a bachelor's, Mm -hmm. and most master's programs will take three years. Yep. And so, you know, people are anxious to get working, right? So I think that's a big difference. <laughs> uh, thinking about having to not only pay for for it's another really three good. years of school, but also not working. I mean, although I worked full time while I was you know, doing my my master's, but, yep. you know, not everybody wants to do that. Yeah. So, but you have to work to pay off your student loan. Right. We don't have that. The other difference I've noticed, but that is simply because the soil is different, is that what's it called? The little test pits that you do? Shovel test pits? Shovel test, yes. Shovel yeah. test pits. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about that, but I missed the name. <laughs> so we don't do shovel tests. Okay. And, and one of the comments I've done on the APN and, and also on the on social media, it was like, we don't do shovel tests. It's so inefficient. But of course, if, if all your, your archaeological stuff is on, on the surface or very low below that, you have to search for that and find it. We do trenching. So that mm-hmm. means we, we get an excavator, we remove okay. the topsoil and everything that's in it, and we go into the, the undisturbed soil and we look for features like post holes, ditches, uh, wells, graves, and things like that. Yeah, that I think that differs specifically because what we look for, at least in, in California, but I think it's pretty similar across the, the United States. A lot of times what we're looking for are very small artifacts yeah because that's all that's left of the prehistoric deposits yeah but when we when we look for prehistoric we've got two major ways to do that one is is field walking but that Mm -hmm. are mostly sites that are very dense and that are partly disturbed by plowing Uh, and the other thing we do is augering like for instance you have those those test pits we make a round pit with a Mm -hmm. shovel yeah and then i say well, why not just take an ogre and just drill a hole in it and sift through that? Wouldn't that be easier? We could do that. And you know, actually, I'm right now we're doing an excavation down in LA and Mm -hmm. it's all backhoe trenching. So, you know, it definitely, I I think it definitely matters in what state that you're working in, but we do quite a bit of backhoe trenching, what we call backhoe testing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And then, Wouter, I, I'm really glad we got on this topic because this is what I was curious about, sort of a day in the life of the CRM archaeologist and how it's done. Yeah. I worked in Germany for a summer and I noticed some differences and I was wondering uh, for you guys. So as you're excavating, how much do you collect? Like, do you screen everything? Do you collect everything in the screen? Do you like in a, on a typical day? How does that go? There is, there is very little screening going on, mainly because the, the soil is very wet. So mm-hmm. only if you have very dry sand, you can do screening. So it, it wouldn't work otherwise. So we collect the, the pot shards and, and the pieces of glass and metal that, that we see when we, you know, we got a post hole, you put your shovel, you make a cross section of that. Whatever you find there, you collect. It's not like we, we sifting through everything. Of course, there are special locations like the bottom of a well and things like that where we do actually take soil samples like in, mm-hmm. in big buckets and we sift through those. But 
in the field, the only sifting we do is when you've got prehistoric sites. Right. But that's a whole different kind of archaeology. Or on rare occasions when you have certain features that are really important and you say, well, I have to sift through this because otherwise I've got nothing at all. There are certain periods where there's very little material going on. It's not that we deliberately leave things on the field, except like building bricks and things like that. You, you take a representative site and, and the rest you leave. Or if you got a well, you take your samples from the wood. It's not like you, you collect every piece of wood of that entire well and you take it home. But your regular finds, we just collect everything that we find. And it depends on, on the site. It depends on the periods, how much mm -hmm. you can have. You have excavations where on an entire day, you find as much as what another excavation has done on a month. Right, <laughs> right. Uh, no, that's great, because that's something that would be a real difference here uh, in most places in America. They'd be like, oh, my God, they don't screen everything at all times <laughs> ever. Uh, that's what I noticed, too, in, in Germany. And I was also wondering about like a typical excavation size. Is there a size of a, of a test pit that you dig? Uh, well, so... We don't do test pits. <laughs> we do trenching. So your, your regular trenching, which is, is what I think in America is called the phase two, where you try yes. to find is there a site, yes or no. So we do trenching with an excavator, a trench two meters wide up to the undisturbed soil. And the axis of each trench is 15 meters apart. Okay. And with that, you cover more or less 10% of, of a field. And mm -hmm. depending on what you find there, you make an adjustment, is there anything, which is question one. Question two, if there is anything, is it worth excavating? Like, you know, you do your trenching and you find two post holes. And, all right, you're going to extend the trench on that location a bit mm -hmm. and you find two others and you say, all right, I got a speaker. I got a small structure on, on the side of a field, but that's it. There's, there's right. nothing else that you say, well, is there a site? Well, technically speaking, yes, there is. But we're not going to excavate this. We, we're not going to gain any knowledge uh -huh. from that. Or you could do a part where you say, well, the southern half, there's a lot of features there. The northern half, there isn't. So we're going to excavate the southern half and leave the northern half for, right. for whatever. Yeah. So we, 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 we ask ourselves the question, does this benefit archaeology? Because <laughs> in Flanders, which is a very densely populated area now, but in, in the past as well. So we, we've got, you know, every kind of, of European country has got uh, some kind of representation somehow where in history here, but it's also very fertile soil. So there is a lot of archaeology everywhere. The question is, is it enough to justify further research? Is it enough to, mm -hmm. to justify uh, sure. the cost of an excavation? Right. Oh, cool. And then my last question, and I'll throw it back out to the panel. How do you guys measure your levels? Do you do natural levels? Do you do 10 centimeters at a time as you go down? How do you guys do it? Well, that's a question that the, the building company also wants to know. Well, how deep do you go? And then we say, do the archaeological level under this one. Well, in building terms, that's often called uh, the solid ground where you build upon. So it's Layered archaeology is only done in cities. And then you, you're really looking for like, all right, this is a layer where people have walked or this is a layer where we can see the feature. It's not like we do, right? We take 10 centimeters. We, uh -huh. we register everything we've got. We lower another 10 centimeters. We register. No, we just go and look for the level. Gotcha. Where we have the features. 
The exception, of course, is Stone Age archaeology, because you've only got your little artifacts. So there you go, by 10, 20 uh, or 15 centimeters, you go down and you collect, you got a more mm-hmm. or less 3D, 3D grid there. But the other part is just, we look for the archaeological level. In the countryside, it's usually one, sometimes two, when you've got a soil covering uh, older soil. In cities, it can be multiple levels, depending on the kind of occupation you've got there. I think, although I definitely understand your your perception of shovel test pits <laughs> and their inefficiencies, you know, here, at least... CRM, it's the first thing is we're looking for absence or presence. You know, is there a site there? And that's usually what we're doing with the shovel test pits or the backhoe mm-hmm. trenching. And then the second thing is we do have, we have to discuss, decide if it's, we have to evaluate. So we have a, we have a resource. Now we're going to evaluate its significance. And that was what I was actually kind of curious about was we have some specific criteria that we have to look at in order to determine whether or not something is considered significant. And it also depends. Sometimes you're, you are what we call under either CEQA here in California, California Environmental Quality Act has specific criteria. And then you have NEPA. And then other NEPA is the national, the same thing, but for the national side of things here. And then, you know, each state, not every state, some states just fall under NEPA because they don't have their own CEQA like California does. But the, the significance evaluation is very specific. And we decide it's not just, you know, is this interesting or whatever it is. Can it, which is a lot of the same language that you're using, can this contribute data-wise to prehistory and, his, and history that we do not already know? And so that usually is kind of that threshold of whether or not something is significant. So if we determine that a site or resource is significant, then the next question is, with development, when it comes to CRM, is it feasibly avoidable? And so we only do data recovery if it is not feasibly avoidable. So in CRM archaeology, the idea is to always preserve and protect. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's the same thing in Belgium. But our jump is not just right away to do data recovery. Data recovery only happens if... Well, there's two two aspects, but more commonly, it happens if that resource is not avoidable like some through design change for the development or, or whatnot. So is that the same in Belgium? Well, two things. The idea to preserve archaeology is one of the basic concepts of the Treaty of Valletta. So mm-hmm. that's the first thing we also look like. Can I just say in C2? Unfortunately, in 99% of the cases, it's simply not possible to keep it in C2. That's about so, the same. Yeah, so that's why we do excavate and do further research. The second part is there is not, unfortunately, a strict framework of how valuable is something in archaeology. So it's most likely the gut feeling of the, of the archaeologist who is working there. The other archaeological features that have been found in the area, so there is a, a database that we can consult on, on the GIS layer, Mm-hmm. what has been yeah. found in the area. So you look at that. Um, yes. You look, look like, you know, like the example I've got, you've got two post holes and two others. Well, yeah, that's not, doesn't bring any value to it. So we leave that, which is the case in, in uh, if it's so clear. So there's not a strict framework. Also, all our reports, all our advice is read 
by uh, the government. They have got mm-hmm. archaeologists and they are controlling mm-hmm. us and they are putting out rules and they have the final word. So we can say this is not worth excavating. They can disagree. And right. then we either provide a better argument why it's mm-hmm. not worth excavating or we change our argument and say, okay, we, we're going to excavate that. So they're also... We have the same thing. Yeah, it's, it's basically yeah. the same thing. There are a few things that we are missing that we know we, we there is a lack. Like, for instance, you've got from the, the Roman period into the Middle Ages, there is a gap. What, what's happening there? But of course, you have to find those sites to, to be able to, to answer that question. But there's not a strict framework. It's more like, mm-hmm. is the site going to be dense enough, big enough to provide any, right. any feasible knowledge? So, you know, as far as shovel test pits, and at least in California, and I, th- I think this is the case in many of the states in, in, in the U.S., is the shovel test pits are a little bit easier to control than a backhoe trench. Mm-hmm. And whether that's true, it's definitely the perception. <laughs> and mm-hmm. a lot of the, the reason why we do, and more so, it's becoming more and more the case, that we do CRM and when we excavate or when we're trying to at least get an absence presence, even if we don't think anything is there, is motivated by tribal consultation. So the tribes more and more are pushing that unless you can point to the fact that the disturbance that is proposed is going to occur within foreign fill soils, so soils that at some point have been brought onto the site, mm-hmm. and that it's not going to be impacting native soils, they their assumption is that there is something there, no matter what, even if there's there's no other proof of that. And because of that, you're seeing more and more of these probing the shovel test pits to really see if something's there, even if you don't have previous, you know, previous evidence or a, a site that's already been discovered. And, you know, there's good reason for that. But I'm curious, are, you know, as far as tribal, we have our tribal consultation here that is becoming more and more a part of archaeology. Is there something that's similar to that in Belgium? Well, we, we've got no tribal presence here because mm-hmm. I, mean, I am a native right so we don't have got that aspect within archaeology we have stakeholders you have yes well it's like I, i've done an excavation on a graveyard just in, in this in the center of the city and there were people passing by who were very interested in that there were people who were a little bit afraid of it because they are after all human remains but there are very very few people who have a problem with this, who say, why yes. just not leave them there? They're that leave. It's very, very limited. So sure. the way we handle all that people is completely different than how your Native Americans handle their ancestors. And because of that difference, of course, you look at archaeology and then especially cemeteries completely differently. But to go back to the, uh, the difference between what we do trenching, we only have two people. So like I have got to go trenching and it's me, a second person who's also an archaeologist and then an excavator with, with a driver in there. Mm-hmm. And that's it. And on, on one day we can do one hectare of, of field testing, which means of that one hectare we do 10%. Like with your shovel tests, what I've seen is that there are a lot more people there so active on the terrain and they're, they're looking for stuff. If we would do the same in Belgium, 
we would find something on every side. So that's why, mm-hmm. why sure. we, we don't just, it's, it's too dense. Uh, and, and well, we are looking for features. We are looking for signs of occupation, whether it's, it's building or graveyards or, or construction sites in the past, you know, next to a river bank, whether it could have been a bridge or, or a road uh, next to that. So the way we handle archaeology or look at it is, is different because we are the natives. We yes. are basically excavating yeah. our own history. Right. But of course, every nation in Europe has, has been into Belgium, you know, Flanders being the battlefield of Europe. So we, we find proof of every kind of civilization yeah. in Europe in Flanders. Well, as as humans, we always, <laughs> we we do have a type, we, we want to come together, but we also have a tendency to divide. And mm-hmm. I think I was kind of curious from your perspective, if there were, you know, there there were any differences. I know that, you know, you're not dealing with the same things that we're dealing with here, where we have, unfortunately, you know, communities that have been severely impacted by the colonization of, of the, of the United States. And, and because of that, you know, they now are being given an opportunity to have a say and to protect at least some of the, the history underneath, you know, in the ground that, that still exists. And so that I could say that that's different. I just was wondering if there were any, there's any process for stakeholders, but it sounds like there hasn't been a movement towards wanting to have that. So even with history, we have with architectural historians or with historical archaeology, we still have stakeholders that are involved in the consultation process here in the United States. And so that's interesting. That's that's a major difference, I think. And it definitely makes a difference in, in how you do archaeology. So Well, the the only stakeholders we, we would have would be local people who are dealing with, with archaeology and, and history, but that's more like consulting. It's not like they they can mandatory prevent something or right. or put certain measures on it. Generally people are interested in history. They are generally interested in archaeology. It's just unfortunately that within CRM, we've got so little time and money to spend on that public to inform them. But it's not like somebody's actively preventing archaeology. That doesn't happen. Well, Router, thank you so much for joining us. This has been fascinating, really fun to see. Actually, that there are so many similarities between the two. That's always fun. Dissimilarities are also fun to look at, but I think maybe we'll, we'll have you on for another podcast so we can dig into that a little bit further. That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archpodnet.com slash podcast. Please comment and share anywhere you see the show. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or just email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Support the show and the network at archpodnet.com slash members. Get some swag and extra content while you're there. Send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Thanks, everyone, for joining us this week, and thanks also to the listeners for tuning in, and we'll see you again in the field. Goodbye. Take it easy. See you guys next time. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> Louder with the flare.
This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. .com.